Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute, or HI, among friends. We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy, and sexuality. As an organization, HI is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews you are able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do. Shall I get started with the interview? Let's do it! Hi friends, Kate here. I am recording in my little office room, which has become extremely familiar in our times of shelter in place. But this room was recently made a little fresher, a little brighter, by a conversation I had with sex educator and author Emily Nagowski. Okay, so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Emily happens to be one of my personal idols. Her focus on sex education and research, paired with her amazing mission to help women feel more confident in their bodies, let's just say when I grow up, I hope to be just like her. In this episode, our conversation meanders through unexpected topics like pie and dragons and the TV show The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but... Beneath all of that is a message about how our bodies work, the cure to emotional burnout, and a discussion about what it means to be normal through a scientific lens. I'm giddy with anticipation all over again just thinking about it. So without further ado, here's Emily. Emily, would you mind introducing yourself, telling us your name, your pronouns, and where you're coming from in the world today? Sure. I'm Emily Nagoski. I go by she, her pronouns, and I live in Western Massachusetts. Wonderful. So Emily, you are a sex educator, uh, an author. You've done some TED Talks. And um, my first question for you, I'm wondering if you can jump in by talking a little bit about what you've learned along the way that's been the most impactful and significant to you in your life through that career. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) We don't start off small here. (laughs) I've been actually thinking about this a lot about, uh, so I'm 43 now, Mm -hmm. which is approaching middle age, I would say. Uh, And given that we're in the midst, I don't know how evergreen I should keep my language, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, And uh, whenever we're in like a big like a large scale crisis moment, it forces me into a place of thinking about like, what are the lessons I have learned from the past of my life that have gotten me through those big moments? The 2004 election keeps coming back to me. I was living in Indiana. I was in grad school. It felt extremely important to me. And uh, there were a lot of serious consequences from the 2004 election, but I was really invested in approaching that election. I really questioned what I should do with my life. Should I stay in graduate school and keep Mm -hmm. like working, plugging gradually toward this long-term goal? Or should I quit grad school and like work on a political campaign on this sort of like more immediate demand? Mm -hmm. And I had to think long and hard about what was the appropriate investment of my time and energy and efforts and labor. And I decided to stay in school and to focus on the thing that is the thing I do. Um, Mm. I was getting better and better and more focused on this one specific thing that uh, I feel like I'm here to do. Uh, And Mm. I have had the same experience this year of like, what should I do? Like, 
what's the best use of my abilities and my training and my resources. And I keep coming back to, I should like do the thing I do. Like I'm here, I know, I'm lucky enough to know what I'm here for. And I need to just keep doing that regardless of how it feels. Okay. So my sister and I, uh, when we wrote our book, uh, Burnout, in the introduction, we talk about this study. It's a very simple study where they ask some undergraduates on the campus where the study took place to do some mazes on a piece of paper. And mm. on one of the mazes, there was like a little piece of cheese and you're a mouse in the middle of the maze and you got to get to the piece of cheese. Or uh, there's an owl and you're a mouse in the middle of the maze. You have to get away from the owl. The question mm. is which group of people, the owl or the cheese, uh, completed more puzzles more quickly. So I'm hearing like uh, moving towards reward versus moving away from stress. Is that accurate? exactly exactly? And this is this is not a high stakes situation doing these puzzles, <laughs> right? Like it's a cartoon drawing. It's literally just a black and white <laughs> line drawing of cheese, a black and white line drawing of an owl. It's not a true threat. It's just the story. It's the idea. Mm. Um, and even under such artificial low stakes situations, moving toward the cheese results in more mazes, more efficiently with fewer mistakes. Mm. I love so, that. Wow. Right? Yeah. The more we stay focused on moving toward the cheese, like the thing that gives us purpose and meaning, uh, the easier we'll become. I have experienced 2020 uh, as like a 14 foot owl mm. camping out in my backyard. Yeah. 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 14 foot, no less. It, it's really hard to stay focused on my cheese when there's this 14-foot owl <laughs> in my backyard. Oh, I so resonate. And I love the analogy. I It's so right on, the moving towards our passion yes. uh, rather than having our lives be dictated by stress and fear. I, it's Yeah, it's right on. Um, for those of you who are not totally familiar with you yet, wh what is your kind of life's cheese? What makes you yeah. uh, tick? Yeah. The short version is I am here to teach women to live with confidence and joy in their bodies. Mm. Amen. And you do it so beautifully. We tell a little bit about uh, what you've written in your books related to the dual control model. And, mm -hmm. and also the, um, so I just listened again to your TED talk and uh, you talk about at the very beginning, how you surveyed your students after a semester of working with them and, and that the, the, overwhelming response was I learned that I'm normal. Yeah. Uh, and for me, that was such a huge takeaway from your book, Come As You Are. So would you just tell us a little bit about that, what the significance of I am normal is to you? Yeah, uh, it was actually, this is not a detail I include in the talk, but it was the last question on the final exam. Mm. And uh, so I was working at a school full of like high achieving, driven, perfectionistic women. And when the last question on the final exam is just tell me one important thing you learned. You can say anything, just take the question seriously and you'll still get the two points. The <laughs> most important thing to those students is that they get the two points because the two points matters a lot to them. Um, and so I knew they were just going to be honest with me. So uh, I'm in my office grading final exams and over and over and over again as I'm grading these exams, I thought they were going to say stuff like, you know, the affective neuroscience or attachment theory or arousal non concordance or these like technical sciencey the evolution stuff no mm -hmm. i thought they were going to say those things and over and over more than half of my students just wrote i learned i'm normal Ugh. i'm normal just because i'm different from other people doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me i can trust my body because i am normal mm -hmm. and uh 
So if you've graded final exams, you know this is not how it usually goes. I was sitting in my office with tears in my eyes grading final Mm -hmm. exams, Mm -hmm. knowing that there was something really important to my students about feeling normal, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. Something about my class had granted students access to that feeling. And I wanted to do it again. And I wanted to do it on a bigger scale so that people who were not students at this school could get access to this information because it felt so powerful. And I had to think for a long time. That was four and a half years before Come As You Are was published. But that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are. Wow. And the whole time I was writing, I was thinking, what does it even mean to be normal? Because there's a lot of like technical definitions, but what are my students saying when they say, I'm normal, I'm normal, this is what I learned is that I'm normal. And what I have concluded is that what people mean when they say that is not that they are the statistical average (laughs) or that they are typical. Because if your sex partner said to you, that was very typical, statistically average sex. (laughs) Right. That is not the goal. Like that is not what they were aiming for. That is not the thing that reassured them. I think that when people go have that experience of like, oh, I'm normal. What they are feeling is I belong. I am welcome in the human family Uh, because sex is this intensely social behavior, but it's a social behavior we rarely get to observe other people engaging in. It's hard to know if we're doing it right. It's hard to know if we're fully satisfying our partner. And at the same time, we get taught that whether or not we satisfy our partner is a major way that we measure our value on earth as humans. So Mm -hmm. it's incredible. It feels so high stakes. And it feels like there is no clear message of whether you're doing it right or wrong. And you know that your partner is going to say nice things to you because they don't want to hurt your feelings. And so how can you ever really know? If you're doing it right or if you're normal. And I think that what the science does for people when they're finally exposed to it in language that does not carry the stigmatization and shaming that a lot of science has in the past, um, it offers people hope and a sense Mm -hmm. that, oh, yeah, what I'm doing is right and normal. And you can always know what's normal because it's not measured by what anybody else is doing. It's just measured by whether you want and like what is happening inside your body and between you and your partners. Yeah. Yeah. um, When I was reading your book, it was a few years ago now. And uh, what struck me was one of the, I think, most significant uh, findings that you represent in your book is this idea that we have turn on uh, and we're very familiar with turn on, you know, all of our media and culture focuses on the turn on. Right. The gas pedal, Mm -hmm. the gas pedal, the accelerator. Right. So, but we also have the things that put on the brakes, the things that turn us off. And that was like, just so mind blowing to me to read. But then you also incorporate this, like, um, the layer of the context, right? So this idea that uh, context is everything about whether we put the gas on or put the brakes on. And what was normalizing for me was I was in the beginning phase of my relationship with now my fiance. And um, I was experiencing having a higher sex drive than him, wanting it more often than him and feeling confused about that and having um, really my first consistent experience of extending an invitation to be intimate and having a no. Um, And that, you know, it it fed into all these ideas about what women, what our role is versus the man and like how things are supposed to be. And we both were conflicted by that. You know, this feeling of 
this doesn't seem like it's following the quote unquote script of how we're supposed to be. And it was so liberating to read your book and feel like, no, I just, and not only for me, there was another layer of recognizing that, oh, actually the things, it's not that he's not turned on by me. It's that there's a lot of things in our environment that are hitting his brakes. Yes. And when we saw that, it was like, oh, so I just have to not initiate when you're stressed out at work. Like, got it. Like I'll do something different. So I, I was, I'm, so I'm, my question for you is, um, did you go into that seminar with those students with this uh, thesis idea of teaching normalcy or did that emerge through your students' feedback and be kind of an aha moment for you of like, this is what's so significant about this research? Did it kind of apple and egg or um, chicken and egg question here, but. So here is the, my undergrad degree is in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. And I stayed interested in the philosophy of science as I was getting a PhD. It's important to question like, how does science work? And what does anything mean? Uh, And chicken and egg is a thing that comes up often. And the answer is the egg. Mm. Something that was not quite a chicken laid an egg from which was born the first chicken. Mm -hmm. Right? (laughs) Yeah, evolution makes sense. Right. It's, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, human beings are just not used to thinking about the world in these fine gradations of something that was not quite a chicken. So when does it cross the threshold into being a chicken? Mm-hmm. And the reason I am bothering to talk about this is because it actually is very much the way I te- can answer the question for you. Uh, okay. So, on the one hand, clearly the message my students were receiving is, "You are normal. You are normal. You are normal." What I thought I was teaching was something that was almost that, but was really just, here's what you see about sexuality for our species when you look at it through a scientific eyeballs mm. instead of through a cultural lens. Yep. And the message that communicated to my students was, you're normal. So I was not quite a chicken laying a thing that turned into the egg <laughs> of I am normal. And my mm. students showed it to me. And when I read those answers, I was like, oh. Oh, that, that's really important, that thing. Yeah. And has it felt important to you in your own life? How has your own message resonated and, and uh, influenced you in your experience of your sexuality, but also just your personhood, your womanhood? So I learned about the dual control model in 1999 or 2000 when it had first been published. The two original authors are John Bancroft and Eric Janssen, who were researchers at the Kinsey Institute. And John Bancroft was one of my clinical supervisors at Kinsey. And Eric Janssen was uh, one of the chairs of my dissertation committee. So I am absolutely the child of the dual Hmm. control model. And I remember the day I learned about it, it felt like my brain had been like just cracked open and dumped out onto the ground and then reassembled inside my head better. Like I just Mm -hmm. felt the world made so much more sense now. There's a break. There's a break. It responds to all of your reasons not to be turned on. Like stress, for example, like body image, like trauma. Oh. (laughs) Oh, of course. (laughs) I can explain so much. And, And then gradually over the next few years, I learned about the importance of context. Like how does your brain decide whether something is a potential threat? Or if it's a sex-related stimulus, well, it really depends on the context. Like tickling uh, may feel fun and playful and sexy if you're already in a fun, playful, sexy state of mind. But if you are, you know, in the middle of an argument with your partner and they start tickling you, it does not feel great. The way your body, your body and brain interpret that sensation 
depends on the context in which you receive it. And when you have both of those things, that uh, both the accelerator and the brakes, and how they respond to the world depends on the context in which they are receiving information, it, it, there you are. You're good. You have everything right. you need to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Come As You Are is 110,000 words long, and that's just two of the chapters. But like, that's really the core of it. Mm-hmm when you're trying to understand how the brain processes sexual information. And I have found that so important. Um, I have been in a relationship for about 10 years now. We've crossed from our 30s into our 40s together. And our bodies and lives have changed over those years. We've been into and out of sort of different levels of ability. And uh, man, if I didn't know that already... There would actually be times when my sexuality felt shut down and I would have no idea why and I would have no idea what to do about it and I would freak out and freaking out about it is like the ultimate brakes header. Like if you're like worried about your sexuality and judging your body, does does that hit the sexual accelerator? Yeah, right. For me, it definitely hits the brakes, right? So if I know that I can relax and just allow it to be true, that things are changing right now and explore what's happening right now with curiosity and compassion, that means I never get trapped in fear that the changes I'm experiencing are dangerous in some way. Hmm. So I'm hearing in that that uh, you've been benefited in your relationship that this knowledge of it's it's okay that our sexuality changes our context changes and therefore uh, you know if we can approach our experience of our turn on with curiosity regardless of what's happening uh, that we actually give ourselves an advantage because we are approaching ourselves with with kindness rather than with stress and judgment. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And that's we know that from all the self-compassion research that when people can turn toward their own difficult internal experience with kindness and compassion instead of with self-criticism or judgment, mm. they can heal more fluidly from whatever past hurts they're carrying around in their bodies. Like we know that that's true. And it turns out it's also true around sexuality. The more we can allow whatever's happening right now to happen, mm. the more frictionlessly mm. we can move through something that's uncomfortable to a place that feels peaceful and joyful. How would you, uh, how do you practice that of coming to yourself with compassion so that you can move through it with less friction? Do you take breaths? Do you ask for a moment to to calm down or shift? Or how do you work through that and, and build that muscle of that self-compassion? Um, in my relationship, it's incredible. I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm married to my best friend and mm. he uh, makes jokes for a living. <laughs> so our fights are characterized by a combination of like both of us crying and being really sad about the ways we have like disappointed each other and failed to meet each other's expectations to one of us cracking a joke and laughing about it and sort of like creating a lot of space and breathing room. Uh, John Gottman, the relationship researcher calls that a repair, Mm. but it's just this organic way that both of us can like turn our attention toward the point of conflict. And then like when it gets too difficult, we grant each other permission to like take space away and like let our heart rates come down and remember that um, like there's him and there's me and then there's this problem that exists and Mm -hmm. he's not the problem and I'm not the problem, but we're a team working together to try and fix this problem. 
And yes. the problem is usually like, if you can get to that state of mind, the problem is hilarious. <laughs> Bringing humor and levity to it and externalizing it. Like I heard you say, it's, I'm not the problem. He's not the problem. And we're going to be a team to work towards uh, resolving the problem rather than trying to fix each other. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. It's actually so much easier to do with him than it is just by myself. And there are times when I recruit him. So I have uh, both depression and anxiety long term. Um, yeah, that can make it challenging to be at peace with oneself, can't it? Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel um, yeah. And given my background uh, I and, and my mental health, I can't help but experience the pandemic as it's like my personal responsibility to end the pandemic. Oh. I'm like, I know intellectually that's not true. Of course I do. Right. Part of my heart even knows that's not true and is being really like kind and patient to the part of my heart that kind of believes that it's true, that it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility to fix it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> and so when I have that feeling, when I feel swamped and overwhelmed with how helpless I am in the face of disaster, Mm -hmm. uh, that is like the hardest moment when I have learned, here's my skill. And uh, I'm going to describe it in metaphorical terms, not at all science-y. Okay. But that part of myself, I'm I'm sort of like pie. Have you ever seen? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was just very sweet. Have I seen what? <laughs> After horrible sing-along blog. Um, I, I haven't, but I've heard really good things. I probably should watch it. Writing is very clever. They talk about how sometimes people are layered, where like what you see on the surface is different from what's underneath. And mm -hmm. then another person says, and then sometimes there's a layer just like the layer on top underneath that second layer. Mm -hmm. And I am like that. I have a top layer of like confidence and calm and compassion. And then I have this blueberry pie mess of fear and shame and rage and frustration and then like a bottom crust of confidence and compassion. <laughs> so I know that like when I get sucked down into the like blueberry mess, mm. uh, I have learned that the thing to do is not to fight it, not to like try and swim myself out of the morass my thing to do is to soften into it, mm. to let myself sink all the way through it. Feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through the darkness to get to the light at the end. I can't get out of the mire by struggling to get out of the mire. I get out of the mire by softening into it and allowing myself to slide through it and get to the end of it. Um, there's a Rumi poem because, of course, there's a Rumi poem for every experience that a middle-class 21st century white woman has. <laughs> uh, there is a secret medicine given to people who hurt so hard they cannot hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Dig a way out through the ocean to the bottom, I think. Mm. I probably quoted that wrong. But the idea is that uh, you don't get to a solution by struggling and fighting to get out of it. You dig your way through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And land on the sand because our emotions are not real physical landscapes. They are magical. Um, when my sister and I, my sister and I do a podcast now uh, called the feminist survival project, and we did a trauma episode, uh, hmm. which she's a choral conductor, I should say. Hmm. Um, and so the more difficult the topic, the more necessary it is for her to write a song to go with the topic, to help to like be really gentle about it. And she wrote a song, uh, 
called This is Why the Stories Are Full of Magic. Mm. Wow. About the ways that trauma cannot be captured by ordinary rational thinking. You have to have like a metaphorical, you need dragons to fight. Because even though there's no dragons in the world, when you're like recovering from the deep, dark stuff that happens in human minds and bodies, it it's a dragon. There's nothing in our external lives that can analogize what the internal experience is like. And so you end up with ridiculous analogies like, I have to let myself sink through the blueberry pie mess until I can settle onto like the crust of compassion and confidence. Uh, and then I like loop my way around again because that is the nature of my brain. Yep. I, I'm in the process of getting my master's in counseling and um, we just finished a theories course and we were studying narrative therapy and it yes. totally won my heart because I was like, yes, because we're so unique and so strengthened by our language, our ability to um, use language. But language is also not just a tool, but it is the building blocks to our reality, right? We think in language, we think in metaphor, we think in images that come we together. Think story, yes. We think in story, exactly. And the power of healing that can come through sharing our story, revising our story, uh, you know, inserting important metaphors to better understand our story. It's just, it's amazing to me, the power that's there. So I, I'm totally resonating with what you're saying. We actually write about that in, uh, so the set, my, after I wrote Come As You Are, I wrote a book with my sister called Burnout, which is about stress. Because it turns out the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being is her overall well-being. So mm. we wrote a book about overall well-being and there's a section on narrative therapy specifically for people whose burnout is not just burnout but has trauma underpinning it yeah. or where it's not burnout it's actually trauma survivorship talking about narrative therapy the most recent episode we recorded is about the unbreakable kimmy schmidt interactive special on netflix uh-huh <laughs> i love kimmy schmidt mm -hmm. so the interactive special i spent all day watching all the different iterations of the story uh, and we were saying that like storytelling is incredibly powerful. This choose your own adventure kind of interactive special where you get to decide what happens is the ideal scenario for a trauma survivor healing story, which is what Kimmy Schmidt is. She had horrible things. My therapist actually will not watch the show because she can't imagine making light of like a young girl being kidnapped and locked in a bunker for 10 years and then released. And then what's that like for her? Yeah. Um, which I totally respect. And if, if it's not for you, it's not for you. That's totally fine. Um, but in the interactive special, it's called Kimmy versus the Reverend and the Reverend is her perpetrator. Um, she gets to confront him. He, she's chasing him through the forest. He falls, embraces ankle. So he's lying on the ground. He is trapped and she happens to have a gun because she took it away from a baby to keep the baby safe. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, the reverend says, whatever you do, don't do what you're thinking. What are you thinking, Kimmy? And you get these four options that pop up underneath. And they are that you shoot him, mm. you smash him, you spare him, or you splode him. Splode, like explode. <laughs> uh, and uh, so you get to try different ways of destroying the perpetrator mm -hmm. and not to spoil i'm gonna i'm just gonna spoil the crap out of this if you haven't watched it and you plan to watch it <laughs> turn off now i'm on back <laughs> actually what the research says people think that people say they don't want things to be spoiled um but the research actually says that when things are spoiled people enjoy it more 
So uh, you could go ahead and try it out. Yeah. I'll use that next time I accidentally spoil something for someone. I'll say, well, the research shows <laughs> you could actually thank me for this. You don't think you want it spoiled, but actually you're going to enjoy it more now that I have spoiled the crap out of it for you. Um, <laughs> in each of the uh, scenarios where Kimmy destroys the Reverend, um, she loses everything. In one case, she literally kills herself too. Uh, and in two others, she gets like lost in the woods and becomes like she abandoned, she walks away from her whole life. And this is the most honest representation of what happens when uh, in real life, a survivor gets trapped in um, punishing their perpetrator. Mm -hmm. We need the story of it. We need to like imagine ourselves as the superhero, like just demolishing our perpetrator. I don't know a single survivor who hasn't had some sort of fantasy of destruction, even if it's um, the most gentle one I've heard is a fire hose on a perpetrator mm. to like push him back, but also like cleanse the pain that turned that person into someone who would do something so difficult, so terrible, right. like so beautiful. But like we all have the, and we need permission to go and have those dark thoughts and to empower our bodies to go through the emotional process of destruction and not to do it in real life. When Kimmy, mm -hmm. when you choose the spare him option, that's when uh, Kimmy says no, because I'm better than you, and mm -hmm. I don't want to. This that's not the world I choose to live in. She says, mm -hmm. and that's where she gets all the happily ever afters in the world, including rescuing six other girls who were in a situation like she was in, which is what happens in real life. So it's this right exactly. Oh. Like we have to have both. We have to have the fantasy. Of just of like sending our perpetrator to hell, which is what mm -hmm. happens. Um, but in real life, it is our choices, Harry, that show who we truly are and not our abilities. It's our choices, not our abilities. Like you could destroy someone. You could inflict pain on someone who caused you pain so that they yeah. know what it feels like, so they understand what they did. You can, but just because you can doesn't mean that that's the choice that's going to bring healing. A lot of us get trapped in a narrative that if we bring punishment or consequences to the perpetrator, that's how a survivor accesses healing. Yeah. Um, a lot of the storytelling around like revenge is a survivor perpetrating some form of something or other against their uh, perpetrator. And like you get like sort of the smug smile afterwards of like, ha, I did it. I got mine. And that's not what it feels like in real life. Mm -hmm. In real life, what that feels like is you're still left with all of the pain that's just like been there waiting for you to turn toward it yep. with kindness and compassion instead of all the energy and attention you were investing in um, inflicting pain on the perpetrator. And that same kindness and compassion is the same thread that comes back to the dual model that you've uh, laid out where when we have these breaks that have been created through trauma, right? If we have a, mm -hmm. um, a block in our ability to be intimate or um, anger that comes up or triggers that come up, um, loving that in us and recognizing the way that it has served us and protected us and that it's there for a purpose is what allows us to open that door again. Is that accurate. Yeah. It's amazing to me that that comes full circle, that there's the compassion inward and the compa compassion outward. And that when you're able 
And and the other piece I heard in just what you just said that I want to latch onto that feels so true to me is um, not feeling like we have to be, that's the only thing we can be is compassionate and loving. We can also live through the frustration and the grief and the anger that this has happened to us. Um, and, and I would even go far to say, and tell me if you think I'm off on this, but it doesn't even have to be trauma. It can be, I'm angry that the world tells me that my kink is not okay or that who I love is not okay or, you know, anything that, um, has us feel afraid, small, shameful when we turn, uh, when we allow both and the piece of, I'm upset about this, it's fucked up. It's not fair. And I'm going to love my response to it and love who I am and be who I am. That's when we can feel. When I was, uh, when I lead orientation programs for first year college students, uh, I have them all standing around in a circle and they identify a feeling they are having right now, which is very Mm -hmm. often tired. (laughs) Um, and I have them uh, say, I feel whatever it is. And they jump up and throw their arms up in the air. I feel whatever it is. And then they uh, jump up and throw their arms in the air and say, and I love feeling whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, you can just love that feeling. <laughs> that's a feeling that hap- that's happening in your body right now. The cool thing about feelings is they're always changing. Yes. I had a, a somatic experiencing practitioner um, who worked with a lot of uh, yoga teachers and her, the thing she told me was like, there's a lot of freeze in the yoga community mm-hmm. uh, because the rule is you're supposed to be calm and you're supposed to be peaceful and like, no, I don't have the rage, are exploring ways to allow for all the deep dark stuff to exist at the same time as compassion and kindness, mm-hmm. that um, difficult feelings, particularly rage, particularly if you were gender socialized feminine, that rage is not inherently dangerous, mm. that we don't have to be afraid of our own internal experience. We can trust our bodies not to destroy us. We will not experience any emotion so big our bodies cannot tolerate it. Would you say that all again <laughs> for those of us that would benefit from hearing that just like slow and direct one more time? I don't know. Can I? <laughs> I think you can. So what I heard is for those of us who have been conditioned, culturally shaped to fear our own rage. What you just said is you give us permission to know that it is not inherently dangerous Yes, to be angry. Oh my God. Like that just hit me right in my heart of like, um, because for me, what came up for me is, yeah, but like, oh, but if Mm -hmm. I get angry, oh, but people won't see me as loving or they'll see me as dangerous or they'll run away or they won't like me. Right. Um, Exactly. So welcome to uh, what Amelia and I call, Amelia is my sister, uh, in burnout, we call it human giver syndrome. Mm, what's that? So if you're raised to be a girl, like on the day you're born, people look at your body and they go, it's a girl. And they raise you according to this set of rules. And the rules are you are morally required to be pretty, happy, yet calm, mm. generous, and above all, attentive to the needs of others, which necessarily means that you are like modulating your emotions and enacting like a place of safety for other people's difficult feelings. But like, you're just like managing your own stuff and stuffing it down inside your body until one day an organ explodes, you end up in the hospital like Amelia. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. 
I hope she's okay. Is she all right? <laughs> she is. Okay. Yeah. So that was many years ago at this point. And that is the point at which I taught her. I like the way I express love apparently is by bringing peer reviewed research to my sister in the hospital. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever seen your identical twin sister crying in a hospital, Johnny, but it's uh, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. If you are actually a health educator whose job it is to help people avoid situations just like that. Mm. Um and so when I wrote Come As You Are, that because context matters so much and overall well-being is the best predictor of sexual well-being, there's a chapter about stress and emotions. And when I was traveling after Come As You Are came out, people kept telling me, yeah, all that sex science is great. Dual control model, love it. But uh, the one chapter that changed everything was that one about stress and emotion processing, mm. which I told Amelia. And she was like... <laughs> no shit, dummy. Remember that time I was in the hospital and then you taught me this stuff and it saved my life mm. twice, she said. And that's when I was like, okay, so we should write a book about that. Oh, wow. I, I haven't read this book yet, but I'm now sold. So you write it together. Does she share about her own journey in the book? Oh, yeah. What is, oh, oh, good. <laughs> it's an introduction in chapter one. Mm. Wow. So tell me in like just a few minutes, we have to wrap up here, but I could talk to you forever. But um, I can, because I had to go through media training, I can absolutely wrap it up for you in just a couple of sentences. The solution, oh, great. the solution to burnout is not and cannot be self-care. The whole point of burnout is that you have not enough resources to take care of your, even yourself. So the cure for burnout is not self-care. It is all of us caring for each other. The most important thing we give and receive is turning toward each other's difficult feelings with kindness and compassion. Mm. When we can do that for each other, that is the ultimate burnout prevention and cure. Mm. Turn towards each other. And it is so much harder to do than to say take care of each other when so the the story that goes with it we were in the middle of writing the book and i was writing my ted talk the one about uh, arousal non-concordance unwanted arousal mm -hmm. so this is this is a pretty dark talk that includes stories of sexual violence um and i was even though i am a stress educator i teach people how to do this for a living and i'm pretty darn good at it i was over my threshold and when i am over my threshold i am um less pleasant to be around socially. I am, uh, Amelia says, a hot hatch bitch. <laughs> she says with love because I like I am not particularly kind or patient with people. So she was planning to come to TED with me, but there was confusion with her travel arrangements and she was telling me about her travel stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I was already like, it was just too much. And I was like, fine, then I just don't have to go. You just have to stay here. I don't even care. Fine. <laughs> and she stopped and was like, okay, so you're over your threshold. She did not turn toward me with like, mm, it sounds like you're really having a hard time now. Yeah. You could really use, like, she didn't do that to me because that's not the nature of our relationship. It's not the culture we come from. And it is not what I needed in that moment. If she had done that in that moment, I'd have been like, no, everything is fine. <laughs> <laughs> and instead, what she did was, so I'm going to take your dogs. I'm going to take them to my house and pets it for you. So you have no excuse. You are going to the beach because we know that the beach is the thing that instantaneously, it's basically like landscape Valium. <laughs> so you're gonna go do that right now and when you do that you're gonna apologize oh. for how you've been today uh -huh. and so I was like fine take my dogs I drive to the beach and as soon as I saw 
the ocean rolling on to the pebble shore and roll back out with that roaring sound and this mm. metaphor of things coming in and then relaxing and easing back and moving forward. Mm. I like instantly start crying and texting Amelia, you were right, I was wrong. And it was only because like I trusted her enough to believe her even when I did not even recognize it in myself. And she had the uh, appreciation of my internal experience and affection enough to believe that my uh, dysfunction was coming from my exhaustion and overwhelm and not from being a bad person. It's only because we had that connection that we could get there. But I do want to make sure I say that that is not the relationship we've had all our lives. We create because a lot of people are like, well, what if I don't have a person like that in my life? We didn't have people like that in our lives, but we read all this research, all this really difficult affective neuroscience and comparative psychology, really hard stuff. And the answer kept being motherfucking love. It kept being connection. It kept being kindness. Jesus. And uh, we couldn't deny it anymore. Like the research was just so unambiguous. We realized we had to... Uh, be vulnerable with each other in all of our emotions and be kind to each other, kind of no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we created for ourselves the relationship we were saying in the book, people need to create. So we are walking, talking evidence that if you don't have a connection like that in your life and connection like that is the solution, if you don't have it, you can create it. But that's what high is about. This is not an audience that's going to be like, I don't think I can change. I don't think I can open my heart to connection. <laughs> well, I, this is an audience that's like, yes, got it. Yes. And and it is what we do at high. And it's why I just adore you, Emily, because uh, for me, this is, I also geek out with research and, and love it. And so to have a rooting down into, oh, over and over again, we see that coming back, opening our hearts, connecting with compassion, this is the answer. And God damn it. <laughs> God damn it. Right. So I'm so glad to hear that you cultivated that with your sister and that you benefit from it. And um, yeah, the, the tenderness of being willing to say, okay, wow, that didn't feel good, but I'm seeing that you're under-resourced, you're at your threshold, and I'm going to return it with love. And if we could just all do that for each other. What a world we would live in, huh? If we could. The way you said it is exactly the way I wish I could say it in my relationships. Like I see you're on the resource right now. Like that's a that's a beautiful way to say it. And uh, that was not what's available to my sister. Or get your ass to the beach. <laughs> yeah, like like you're gonna go, and when you're gone, you're gonna apologize. That's what's gonna happen. And she was 100 percent right. She totally nailed it. Um, and it doesn't have to look right like. Like, especially like when we're seeing these dynamics between men and women, the dynamic we so often see is uh, that the woman is granted the role of having to like hold space yeah. for all the dude's feelings. And she just has to be so like patient and kind. And I see that I witness that you're under-resourced and um, never have a chance to uh, be full of rage and despair herself. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is something that I cultivate both in my marriage and in my relationship with my sister is that everybody gets access to space and time for their rage and despair. Mm. it's so healthy man well I feel like that could be a whole second episode of how do we 
get in touch with the rage and despair. Um, it's weird that like when we talk about sexuality, I always end up talking about uh, rage and despair. <laughs> well, there's a lot of, we are all survivors of something and there's a lot of letting go that has to happen so that we can fully and freely embrace the sexuality that we were born with. Well, it strikes me that, that the energy is not all that dissimilar from erotic energy, that it's like right there in the same, you know, primal, deep rooted space when we allow ourselves free access to that. And for me, like what I've, I, anger, anger is like the one emotion that I I really struggle with. And I'm sure I'm not alone with that, but being a very tender hearted person, it's just not, it's not easily accessible. I'd go right to sadness or guilt or something like that and skip over the anger. But what I've learned in practicing with it is that you can be in a space of anger and not be in a space of destruction, right? You can be in a space of anger and not create more pain for other people. How did you learn that? I know we need to like wrap up, but that is like, how did you get there? Um, I think that I, so for me, it was twofold. One was I was so strongly culturally developed into this like sweet loving, you know, I didn't want to, my, my one mission in, in life was to make sure that everyone was doing well, and that everyone was on good terms with me, right? Didn't want any ruptures in relationship with anybody. And I started to see how that um, in my 20s, in my early 20s, I saw that my commitment, my passionate hold on not wanting to disrupt the harmony and peace actually put me in in the way of unhealthy relationships, made me... um, more vulnerable to painful decisions that I was making that uh, was preventing me from having the kind of integrity and full loving relationships that I really wanted. And so I, I saw that my inability to have a boundary, have anger, have this is okay, not okay, you may not treat me that way, um, was preventing me from being the person I wanted to be. So there was, once I saw that, it was kind of hard to unsee. But then it was coupled with this still very strong part of genuinely who I am, which is this loving, compassionate, you know, seeing the good in people side of who I am. And so um, I had to kind of find a way to have that boundary and and say stand up for myself without feeling like I had to put the other person down. And so uh, I just started practicing, like, how do I say, hey, I'm going to get angry for a few minutes and tell you what's on my heart. And um I need you to hold that. And I'm, I'm asking you to hold that. And actually asking permission is kind of where I started with it. It actually started with my dad. I, I said, hey, dad, like I adore you. And I've got some stuff to say that's hard. And I just need you to tell me that I'm, I've got 10 minutes and you're going to be here when I'm done and you're not going to run away. Um, and he did. And it was really healing for us, for me to oh. be able to be angry with him and have him say, I'm here. And that began to build my trust that I could be angry with someone I love and not lose the connection with them that I so desperately clung to. And that's so, it, it's the trust that they're still going to be there. Are you yes. going to be there for you? Right. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm sad to wrap this up. Um, and I just, I've so enjoyed your, your brilliance and your articulateness and your metaphors. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us here today, Emily. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. I hope people didn't click on this thinking we were just going to talk about orgasm. <laughs> well, maybe next time. We've got, I feel like we've got a list. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> um, we have one final question that we always ask our guests, which is, what is the one song that you can't not dance to? 
That's a tough question for me because I can almost never not dance. <laughs> well, good. Then any song that comes to mind. I was recently at Disneyland. And uh, when you're in downtown Disney at Disneyland, uh, they're playing big bad music. And they played the long Benny Goodman recording of Sing, Sing, Sing. Mm-hmm. And I stopped where I was. And I uh, am a swing dancer. I lindy hopped for a really long time. And it is impossible for me not to dance. So I like stood where I was, but like shuffled my feet like I was lindy hopping with a partner. And I kind of <laughs> wanted to bust out full Charleston. But when I hear Sing, 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 it's impossible not for me to, for me not to shift into dance mode. Sing, I, love, sing, sing. I love the image of you dancing in the middle of downtown Disney. That's delightful. Well, Emily, thank you for coming as you are today and uh, bringing your full self. And is uh, we let our listeners know how they can find you. What, where can we learn more about you and the work that you do? The main internet presence I have these days is the podcast I make with my sister. It's called the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Back last summer, I looked forward to what 2020 was going to be. And I was like, it's going to be a hellscape. Uh, How am I going to survive it? I'm going to make a podcast with my sister about evidence-based strategies for feminists to survive 2020. I turned out to be much writer than I ever thought I would be or wanted to be. um, And it has uh, been saving both of us. I highly recommend this podcast. It's been a joy for me to listen to. So thank you for making it. It definitely. And Amelia sings. She writes little songs. Oh, great. And Amelia is your twin. Did I catch that correctly? Yeah. That's special. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, thank you, Emily. And uh, to all our listeners, thank you for joining us here today. And we'll be in touch. Everyone stay well. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute and to learn more about our workshops, please visit our website at hi.org. That's H-A-I dot org. This show was produced by my wonderful co-host, Kate Gillespie. And it was edited and co-produced by my equally delightful co-host, Haya Camps. Our introduction music is called Dance With Me, and it is performed and produced by our wonderful high workshop participant, Gypsy Jack Van Brie. It was a pleasure to have you with us. See you soon. Ciao.